Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. We are so excited, delighted, honored uh, to have another guest joining us in the HV Crypt. Uh, Ash and I drew up a list of people that we would uh, dream about talking to when we started the show, and we are we are beyond pleased that one of them has decided to swing by. Uh, so uh, we are joined by uh, punk musician, writer, uh, spooky leftist Meredith Graves. <laughs> Hi. You <laughs> sure uh, are. Thanks for having me. This is cool. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. For for people who have maybe not um, come across you and your work and what you do, um, would you mind maybe giving a little kind of introduction to who you are, what you do, what you're about? Sure. I mean, I, I've you know the the longer I do things <laughs> and exist <laughs> in the world, the harder this becomes and the weirder I feel about it. But I'm trying mm -hmm. to be more cognizant of that it's just that i do a whole bunch of different stuff a little and i feel weird because i can't really do a word for that yet i'm trying on artist i'm like i'm an artist just because it's quick it's a good way to get out of a conversation but yeah i am a musician uh i am a writer mostly a music journalist i also write about a lot of other stuff including occasionally politics and the occult and culture i was the host of mtv news for a couple years uh I, you know, I book shows and I bake bread and I do all sorts of fun stuff and have a bunch of weird hobbies, witchcraft being one of them. And then during the day right now, I'm the director of music at Kickstarter. So yeah, I do a bunch of stuff. I like to make a lot of art and help people with their music and we have a good time. <laughs> okay, so important, important leading question here. What is your favorite kind of bread to bake? I am a huge, like rustic sourdough kind of guy. Okay, cool. What, so what's your take on it? You like fermenting. I love that. I think it's currently still, I've been baking bread for like 11 years now, and I find sourdough somehow still a little bit above my pay grade. So I like experimenting with regional, like uh, quick breads. So Ooh, I, like nice. to, I like to bake like a German, Pennsylvania, Dutch. There's like a molasses brown bread that I bake. And a couple of years ago, I went on a tear and I did nothing but make challah for like eight weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. Studying it, studying it until I got it. I used to do, <laughs> bake the same bread once a week until I feel like I've got that one down. And then I like move on to the next. So, yeah, I like this Pennsylvania, Dutch bread and challah and I just like it all. It's a good time. <laughs> uh, what would be what would be the bread that you would suggest to someone who has never baked anything before start with? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know. Not sourdough. I don't know. I'm, whatever I say, it'll start a fight on the internet. <laughs> I, I, I will I will go out there and and, and I, I would go for Italian like the, that's what I started with was just like Italian loaf. Yeah, like with a regular active dry yeast, look up something really simple and like, well, yeah, don't start with a certain kind of bread. Start by like, because bread making is really nuanced and it can get to the point where True. you, like with sourdough, you only make your dough based on like percentage of liquid levain mm -hmm. to flour. Or you can do like, I've made like knockoff Hawaiian rolls before 
to make burgers. You know, you can kind of do anything. There's a lot of bread out there in the world. So I wouldn't suggest honest to God, and maybe we can just cut the interview here because this will tell you everything you need to know about me. I would tell people to read a book about the entire history of bread and then figure it out. <laughs> I told people to read a book about the history and importance of bread in world societies and then be like, follow your heart. <laughs> That's the kind of advice I give people. I, I love the idea that the thing that would like create horror vanguard drama on social media would be our opinions about bread. <laughs> Listen, well, I mean, I know y'all are not going to be strangers to this idea, but I feel like lately more than ever, I have felt the warmth and, and I realize this is probably, probably maybe be a lot of what we end up talking about, but like the, the politics of communities outside politics and how well they can go and how unexpectedly and just how like smoothly things run and how kind people are and how accepting people are and how historically that's been the case in a lot of situations and places, of course, with exceptions to varying degrees of viability, but like horror as a scene being largely great people and like yeah. really nice. So to that point, I'd like to imagine that's the worst fight I could start <laughs> <laughs> in your corner of the internet zone. Please, please don't counsel us for our bread opinions, listeners. Uh, let's, let's cling on to that um that, that kind of positive community and i think that's really true i think i found that in horror, horror academia as well ash will probably agree with me that um academia generally can come off as like a really cutthroat place but uh, horror studies has always been generally pretty good and i think horror fandom too has been a a really positive and 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 in in some in some ways i think there are exceptions but generally it can be a really uh, positive and open-minded space yeah, yeah, I've floated around a lot of fandoms and like academic, especially in academia, uh, like a lot of um, like fields and subfields. And like, I have never found people as as like welcoming and quick to befriend you as, as I do around like gothic and horror communities, which I find incredibly refreshing. Like there's not not the same kind of gatekeeping that goes on elsewhere in these areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's strange because, again, it, it runs counterintuitive. I heard recently, I wish I could remember the exact place that I read this, but it was to wit someone who had acted in a very culturally important horror movie, I can't remember which one, saying, you know, I think there may be a preconceived notion that horror sets are probably crazy and scary, and it's like, no, they're better managed than other sets. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of like professional wrestling, like the difference between what you see. <laughs> and to that extent, I take that into uh, both with the idea of like the greatest show on earth and down into technology and politics and the spectacle, how that all relates uh, back in a way to like magic and the occult or horror in its own way, like the difference between the surface and what's behind it. I don't know that that's something that I think reflects really positively on the horror community and horror fandom. And yeah, horror academia too, because maybe this is a little more personal and, and kind of funny, but you know, I, I've been lucky enough in the last few years that I've been kind of a working journalist to do a little bit of reporting on horror. And I've always been nervous to call up experts, you know, and I got to call people for a quote. And I, you know, if I'm calling people from my desk at you know, Viacom's 
you know, blackened tower. And it's hi, I'm the host of MTV News. Don't make a Kurt Loader joke. Can I talk to you about magic? <laughs> and people are like, yeah, okay, cool. And that's how you meet, you know, Sam Zimmerman from Shudder. And he comes to MTV oh. and he like gives me some baller quotes about the importance of horror fandom for a piece I was doing around the Oscars. And nice. uh, a doctor from the film department at Hofstra who wants to talk about political implications in The Shining and how that's affected, like, eventually how the Oscars took up horror and started to celebrate it. Or, or things like that, or really more recently, uh, you know, the idea of real life horror versus terror, someone who absolutely terrifies me by virtue of his brilliance and how much his work has affected mine is Dr. Eugene Thacker. Yeah. Of course, I was terrified off my ass when I got the opportunity to interview him. And of course, the scariest thing of all was to find out that he's absolutely lovely, <laughs> really, really <laughs> nice and really fun to talk to. We talked forever. It was incredible. One of one of my favorite quotes from uh, Thacker is um, he was being interviewed for an outlet somewhere and I can't remember which one it was. And they asked him, um, he, he was talking about nihilism uh, and he was, they asked me, so are you a good nihilist? And he was like, yeah, probably not as good as I should be. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> It's like that's just the perfect response. I really, really like him. The short series of books that he did on the philosophy of horror for Zero, um, yeah. highly recommend those. Mm -hmm. Absolute favorite. I've loved those books for a long time. I also love like, I mean, again, this will say a lot about the way that I look at things, but I love the layers of horror to that book's appearance and culture and the way it kind of emerged out of a cesspool of bizarro pop culture references that through six degrees of Kevin Bacon gets screen printed on a jacket that ends up in a Jay-Z video and then it's yeah. too detective and it literally comes out of Carcosa into pop culture. I um, love the book took its tentacles via HBO and Jay-Z <laughs> and just sort of thrust them into the discourse. I love Eugene Dacker. I'm such a stan. It's bad. But yeah, I, rules. It is not bad at all. I think I think we started to get onto it, but before we kind of jump into the film that we wanted to talk about today, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit. I think you started to touch on it here about like what you see as the connections between um, the political and the horrific, and what's what has kind of uh, drawn you to 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 the spooky left, as as we are calling this this group of people that we're starting to kind of find out about in wider culture. I I really enjoy that term. I think it's really funny. And I think, <laughs> I think it's a word that people may not know they're looking for. Like it definitely points to something. Um, uh, you, how do you, I don't know. I guess I think by virtue of a combination of my upbringing both in kind of this like natal hell vortex living off of a massive military base in upstate New York and like having a dad who was a local reporter and kind of it also being in the Adirondacks and this sort of permanent hunting rifles, conservative, ultra northern New York, like 11 feet of snow wasteland. I was kind of born into this like predilection for both caring about local politics by virtue of like it being, you know, I grew up across from the base that was the first to deploy when the Iraq and Afghani war became a full on thing in 2001. I had my dad my whole life reporting on local politics. Local politics could involve in my town anything from like a corrupt mayor to a wave of elderly deaths because people were getting iced inside their houses or like groups of Amish livestock dying off or whatever. It was very like desperation. And so horror and politics have always kind of been concurrent in my mind. They've been a Venn diagram that overlap because 
at least from my perspective as someone who places politics sometimes using politics as a way to like leverage culture in an argument I'm trying to make in something I'm trying to write or connect something and kind of like via narrative architecture, use something I'm writing, whether it's a song or an essay to kind of make larger connections in the world. We're always analyzing politics through the lens of the horrifying. And we're often even using that term directly. It's like, it's horrifying that ICE mm. exists. It's horrifying that families are being separated at the border. Okay. It is also horrifying in simple terms. It's horrifying that people are not aware of these things. It's horrifying that, you know, politics are horrifying and, and you often find that language surrounding, um, there's a, there's a great book about this called horrorism, the kind of yeah, place yeah. global news and footage exposure and questions of acts accessibility and, uh, accelerationism and like really scary stuff around politics and specifically how politics and horror have interacted in contemporary media and uh, began to do all sorts of, it's like an egregore, you know, to lean again on the occult, which is my primary fixation in life. Uh, that's kind of out in the world now wreaking hell, like a drone demon flapping over the world, kind of like affecting politics through horror. Like how has global culture been affected by the omnipresent deaths on screen and on down? You can look at it from a lot of like fractal, more granular points from there, but really politics and horror are inextricably linked because horror being horrified is what compels us to do politics. And also like, uh, just sort of like, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but the, the horrifying awakening and then the reawakening and reawakening to politics as you learn more and it goes deeper and you kind of fall into your wormhole and all the weird places that can go too. the horrifying nature of modern politics in regard to things like, I don't even want to say these words again, like egregore or what hell hath wrought, but like Pizzagate, you know, the horror of, yeah. of memetics and like horrific fucking things, forgive me, that can happen as a result of horror fiction and politics and where they interact in the era of, specious news dispersal, you know? So I think about the interplay of horror and politics in a lot of different contexts. I guess most of them do kind of splay off of my work as someone who publishes things on the internet occasionally and responsibilities and, and tactics for that. But yeah, I think there's a lot of different approaches. I think messaging is a really important one right now. I think that's a really, really interesting way of putting the put kind of articulating the the horrifying nature of the political and the political nature of what we find horrifying. Um, yeah, I really, I really liked how you articulated that. I think that was was really, really well put out. These things are kind of constitutive of each other in a certain sense. Uh, one one question I would have is kind of almost like the same question, but from the opposite perspective, like the inverse of that. Like we were talking about. Uh, like like baking bread and it's it's like this generative communal act you know where we pass around bread baking recipes and kind of try and create something that's not in the hands of the greater capitalist machinery um but a question i would have is how do you see in particular the occult and the spooky left kind of tethered together or or somehow operating on a similar frequency because something that I find it to be very interesting is that we're like, you know, using the occult is a very large umbrella term for a lot of, from like, for a, a lot of different uh, perspectives and practices, but it's all very spooky. Like it's all, all deeply tied and connected in with a lot of things that are horror iconography. 
my gut reaction is, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think my bread baking is spooky, but wow. <laughs> oh, it, 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 it is bread. Bread baking is alchemy. And I will defend that to my well, final breath. I will. I will fly. Bread baking is rot. It is necromancy. Bread baking is yeast and combinations. Yes. And the poison people. Bread baking is literally potentially fucking once I get really into my history and I, this, I'm a researcher. I get very dorky. Um, once I get into my history, I swear even more. It, oh, let's do the loop of rye ergot poisoning leading to the reactions that may have actually incited the witch trials. Like bread baking is fucked up occult, and it is also fucked up politics. Bread and roses, and like mm -hmm. bread and feeding the people, and bread in the French Revolution, and and myths about uh, you know fake news about female leaders that came out around that time, revolving around the difference between bread and cake. It is all very interwoven. It is about uh, like the rhetorical magic of getting Marie Antoinette beheaded alleging her feelings on bread you know you can you can again it's narrative architecture you can trace the line all the way back through but where did the occult and the spooky left it's so delightful it's very sonorous just to say it um <laughs> i think that okay so like this week more draconian we've had to watch more scrotums in ill-fitting suits pass more draconian fucking anti-abortion laws or try to anyway. And this is where the occult and spooky left intersect. Uh, radical self-sufficiency. So with all the conversations about abortions and things like that that have been going on this week, um, you know, uh, within around the last hundred years, let's say like a benchmark of a hundred years ago, the infant mortality rate in the United States was still scads higher because like we may have not yet quite then figured out that it's important to wash your hands before you go and like if you're a doctor and nurse to go help women give birth. Yeah. So birth and everything to do with it from menstrual care to abortion to, uh, you know, menopause to, to uh, people who uh, hormonal fluctuations and the different ways that gender is represented across the spectrum. This is all part of reproductive health care and it's all existed for a lot longer than the you know uh, house and senate have here in the united states and it's largely been the province of witches and midwives and and healers and other yes. people who would have been in the primordial spooky left uh people who you know not necessarily you know at any point in history have any of these people called themselves witches you know there's cunning magic and there's folk healing and there's work cunning and there's alchemy and there's you know shamanism and there's you know people who were here long before europeans came over and uh, various healing traditions that we scavenged from cultures that we colonized you can again you can spread it out endlessly but that's to me where the occult and spooky left line up in the name and lane of radical self-sufficiency and also in regards to our persecution and I think you can trace this all the way up through the really well-executed early work of the protest group Witch in the 20th century and their commitments yes. to yes. individual security for their members. And, you know, you, you can take it as far as you want. You can carry it all the way up through uh, the quite literal left's fixation with Monsanto and like, okay, let's draw a box around that and talk about uh, what it takes to get more people uh, interested in sovereignty and agriculture, like asking people to question why they think stuff like that is wrong and like relationship to land as being sacred, fracking, things like that that are closer to where I live. You know, seeing what contemporary things actually jog more liberal and left-leaning people to action often finds itself very neatly hand-in-hand -hand with the occult and traditions of magic and healing and autonomy. 
and like small community care. And really that's where I think the, the spooky left comes in. I'm so happy you brought up Witch, the movement, because I think that, you know, you, using that as a bit of like a um, historic might be reaching, but like a, a contemporary example. And then the Hex the Patriarchy movement that, that's been kind of emerging in these recent years. Like, I think there's also a, a community element to the occult on the spooky left that people are kind of coming together for political and for social causes through the medium of witchcraft specifically. Okay, Debbie Downer, they're also doing it on the other side and they're doing it True. really, really bad. So like, this is where we get into, <laughs> if you thought bread was the thing we were going to fight about. No, this is where we get into <laughs> responsibilities of contemporary occultists who want to operate inside and adjacent to the political sphere. And like what we do when we buy our shit at Urban Outfitters, I, I could go on and show Oh, yeah. Yep. But, but, you know. Yep. And it, it, you can, you can take it again. It's a big old fractal model that you can spin in a million different directions and it has its positives and its negatives. And it has a long, long, long history, but they're also actually, you know, if people are going to hear this, if you're interested in intersections of, of the occult and politics, there's a few books that are really good that have come out recently that I really liked. I like to read books a lot. It's like my only hobby. Um, Gary Lockman's dark star rising is an absolutely mind-blowing book that kind of explains it takes new thought up through its influence on this crazy chaos magician who's been working with Putin for like 15 years and how that may have colored the election. It's really interesting. And then uh, uh, Miracle Club, Mitch Horowitz. Really cool contemporary history books that kind of trace back the historical and esoteric trajectory of uh, politics and the occult. Not specific to the spooky left, but I think the spooky left would do well to know our enemies, so I recommend them both. <laughs> I I could not I could not agree more uh, that, that there is a kind of vital need to know who the enemy is and know what weapons we have to hand to deal with them. Um, which is why which is why any kind of uh, decent left movement has always been interested in 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 history that's that's what we learn from that's that's the kind of foundation of any sort of historical materialist approach to to our current social and and uh political moment um no that's that's fascinating that's really really interesting and a really cool way of 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 connecting up some things that i hadn't even begun begun to think about um i'm a hit at parties (laughs) (laughs) you can sell uh, unironically, yes, I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> no. Um, no, I do think about this stuff a lot, though, especially yeah, because you know, I I try to every time I really want to be negative or be critical. There's like the different phases of you know wondering what is this reflecting that I'm actually not enjoying in myself, or why does this bother me, or what could I do to fix the thing about this that's bothering me, rather than just sitting here criticizing, which is kind of a passive activity when you're doing it alone on the internet. Same, yeah. I do, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I also just like, why be mean on Twitter? You could do anything else. If you, in the same amount of time, I could stand up and get a donut. I'll get the donut. I don't need to be mean. That's not cool. And in a way, the donut is my specific political leaning. It's like, if you if you can do anything, don't choose be a piece of shit. That's basically my politics in a nutshell. Do anything else. But yeah, I, I see a lot of people avoiding responsibility. And I think that 
I think I wish I wish more people were willing to explore that. I wish more people were willing to take risks and actually write about uh, the intersection of the occult and politics as it pertains to their world, instead of like uh, uh, and to to points about like violence and depictions of violence and where we get into like things that would would or would not be good for successful by whatever measure leftist groups. There's this harm none thing that gets dragged up from you know, Gardnerian Wicca of the era of second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's very odd. And it's like, it's very, um, I, th I think about harm none as like an occult, like Psalm and, uh, lazy liberalism and lazy, like yes. pass passive iterations of leftism with about the same level of disdain. And so, yeah, Absolutely. I think there are really thrilling connections to be made between, what people are thinking of is like this contemporary occult resurgence. And again, if you're one of these people who's like, Hey, it seems like a lot of people are suddenly very interested in, in the occult and, and hermetics and witchcraft and astrology. And wow, what's this trend? Like, again, I recommend the Mitch Horowitz book. It's kind of just like a wave that crests. It's popular at varying levels in varying iterations all the time. But right now I'm worried about this political occult thing because of the way that capital can enact itself on that and kind of steal people's focus and take them over to the harm none side before they can figure out ways to do anything with horror and with what they'll potentially learn as a political tool. I mean, that's that's something that's been really behind a lot of what we've tried to do here at Horror Vanguard, which is to treat horror uh, very seriously as a as a cultural form and to see it as a kind of springboard for political consciousness raising, uh, a kind of way of expressing the collective psyche of a given cultural moment. You know, what are we really afraid of and where do these fears come from? Um, and given... Because they're doing the Dark Lord's work. <laughs> <laughs> No, and that's why I wrote that obsessive, like, 16,000 bazillion word screed in Fangoria. It's the greatest moment of my entire life. A few months ago about, about not just uh, contemporary depictions of the occult in pop culture, but, like, infighting in occultist communities about those depictions and how that points to, like, different political issues in, as depicted in media and as people are, like, owning themselves left and right pun fully intended on this political, <laughs> political show. So, yeah. But, but I think given everything that you've said there about your interests, about the, the, the occult, about kind of collective responsibility, about culture, um, let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about a horror movie. Let's talk about a horror movie. Um, and one of the reasons we were so excited to talk to you was to talk a little bit about um, a great film from a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, uh, called Green Room. So as usual, I'm going to ask Ash to give one of his uh, patent uh, recap slash uh, plot intros. Spoilers apply, and then we will pick up uh, some of the things that might be kind of useful for leftist thinking and uh, leftist practice uh, from what emerges out of this film. So, Ash, what what do you what do you what can you tell us about Green Room? So I, I, I usually have some like 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 witty inverse take on the film, but but this one um, so, somehow somebody like like built a time machine and filmed like a version of me from high school, except they they weren't also deeply invested in witchcraft. 
like like this was this was a walk down memory lane for me watching this movie so the uh the, the basic overview of the plot is we have we have a uh nuts and bolts punk rock band the ain't rights or the aren't rights depending on which one you feel like uh pat riri sam and tiger they've been uh, vanning across the country uh doing gig to gig barely making it through siphoning gas to get to the next show uh a a suspicious kind of uh uh Fairweather punk named Tad gives them the big tip on on a show that they can catch up in Portland. And it turns out uh, it's not not just any dive bar, but a neo-Nazi skinhead dive bar. Uh, Pat from the band accidentally witnesses a stabbing. And one thing leads to another and a whole lot of Nazis get bodied. I, I, I like the that. End. I like I like that recap. <laughs> Um, that is a, that it is, it is so good. It is a, it is a really intense, it is a short, sharp shock to the system, uh, watching it, especially for someone who maybe didn't come up in the, in the punk world like me. So Ash, um, maybe you can- John, you're not, you're not a diehard punk rocker. Uh, I am. I am not. Shockingly, I know that's going to amaze so many people. <laughs> uh, but maybe you can start by talking a little bit more about, like, um, just yeah, just where do you want to start with this? So uh, my my first impulse to start with this movie is 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 kind of with the discourse on violence and how on how this movie approaches and treats specifically the. Um, punk's violence against the nazis right and like so so one one of one of the uh you know like classic you know literary conflicts right you have man against nature man against self man against man but you also have punk against nazi (laughs) it is one of the archetypes it's one of the archetypes right It's, it's it's this recurrent theme you know you know the 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 scrabbly group of of ragtag punks versus the 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 order of the nazis and I think that one one of the things I find really interesting is that the, the the punks in this movie have like that lifestylist commitment to to like a broader left value system, right? Like they know enough that Nazis are bad, but their response to that is to do like an impromptu Dead Kennedys cover, yeah. which I mean, amazing song. Everybody loves Nazi punks. Fuck off. It's a classic. But it lacks kind of a more grounded and systemic realization of what's going on. And that's something that doesn't develop until later in the movie it's not until the climax of the film that um are, are two two characters who wind up surviving the conflict uh, pat and amber realize that they need to organize their efforts they, they need to themselves become violent in order to you know defeat the nazis and escape what's happening here and i thought that that was something very interesting that this film does Especially yeah, because, but, but Ash, why oh, couldn't yeah. they? Why couldn't they just defeat them in the marketplace of ideas? You know, they they tried they tried to openly debate <laughs> them with their with their musical song, but it just didn't work out. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yes, very good point. <laughs> uh, so, what do you what do you all think is the kind of relationship then between punk and this kind of skinhead fascist movement that we see in the film? 
maybe maybe the two of you will know more about this than me so maybe the two of you could kind of contextualize this a little bit for listeners uh maybe draw out some of the kind of material conditions from where this antagonism emerges from uh and and help us kind of get our head around that a long effective pause of silence (laughs) um yeah oh my god the miasma swirling in my head when i think about this movie and like its place and how to even approach it i don't even feel like i'm capable of making a value judgment on this movie i'm just looking at it um i don't know i mean maybe you feel this way too but like i First, I always start with the filter of how good a job does this movie do with depicting a culture with which I am familiar. Yeah. How well have these people researched? And to that end, it's kind of a romp. I mean, it's kind of nice. The dudes, the dudes look, they're not, uh, it's pretty good at depicting, it seems like a specific, interesting set of reference points for a couple different, like, like, a. It's like a semiotic pastiche. It's like they cherry picked a couple good references. The kids look really good. They look punk. Playing Nazi punks, fuck off. That's great. Patrick Stewart, great. Killing it. Not making the dudes look like the cast of This Is England. Skinheads, great. Great choice. Poverty, rurality, white supremacy. That is what it looks like in the United States. Great. Um, because like I fessed up. I've only seen it like the once. I'm watching it closely, like really imagistically, but. You know, I can't remember. It's it's they have cell phones. I know that. But like, is it is it accurate in a contemporary sense or is it in a lot of ways uh, implausible? And then there begets like and maybe this is like too external a place to start. But like. The thing I peg is the accuracy in this movie is it's like it's like a much less likely way that people today if the movie is taking place in the area of cell phones and not that everything has to be absolutely accurate I love Game of Thrones I love dragons you know but <laughs> is this a responsible way of taking on this as a concept like is this actually the story that needed to get told in this movie? And is it really an accurate depiction of where people may come up against like Nazism and fascism and music scenes and stuff today? Like, is this really what's happening? You know, I don't know why I found myself asking those questions. Cause I think the movie, like it has a lot of cool moments. It definitely, there were moments where I said, Oh yeah. Like there were a couple standout moments where I said, wow, if somebody who wrote on this like was in a band or something like that. Uh, People don't make a big enough deal out of one of the earlier scenes where the kid, like the whole thing is great. Like, and okay, so here, wait, forgive me. Here's another level to this that I, that I actually, and if you've ever been in a punk band, it's a whole different (laughs) horror movie. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Relationships. And this is something anyone can relate to this idea of like, if you are already in mesh, like if you've been in a band, the movie starts and you're already in the nightmare because you're in the van with the same Mm -hmm. people, you know, and And so let's talk about like moments of horror for the band start when they pull up to the show. No one's there. It got fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> that, that 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 scene where where they, where they show up to the show and there's like two people in the audience who are like the promoter's friends Absolutely. and everyone is like awkwardly sitting around in booth seating and you're in like like I I have like literally played that gig and it, it is the most horrifying experience in the world 
and to try and like belt out a high energy punk song and have one person be staring at you. Exactly. (laughs) People have literal nightmares, stage fright nightmares about being thrown on stage in front of like an empty audience or nobody or people who are jeering them or whatever. Like their nightmare is our any show booked between a Monday and a Thursday in most Midwestern cities. (laughs) Yes. It's a horror movie of a different sort if you are in bands. And then you get to that point where you're like sitting outside the venue. It's like, fuck, if there's no show, the person you said they were putting it on, I probably can't get in touch with them. We can't stay with them. What do we do? And so like, okay, horror movie instantly for me. I'm in my early 20s and our van broke down in somewhere and we're trying to figure out where we are you know, pre, this is, you know, 10 years ago. So there's no iPhones yet. There's like maybe MapQuest if someone's got the internet at their house and you write the directions out and you're like going to the next city. So we're figuring out where we are and we're in Coeur d'Alene. Speaking of skinheads and Coeur d'Alene is like one of the homes of the American Nazi party and like white power and stuff. And we're a queer poor band. And so we're like, okay. And then we are standing on the side of the road, lights off highway with no barriers in the middle of nowhere waiting for either a cop to stop and see what's going on or the tow truck to show up, which we're praying happens first. And we know that we're about to get towed with no way out into the middle of a white supremacist stronghold. So like, there we are. And when I first saw Green Room, I'm like, this happened to me. That's interesting. So it's it's different when you're in a band. There, there yeah. are like good context clues that make this a good, a good music movie. And there aren't a lot of those, and they're the good ones that exist. Some of them are horror movies, you know, uh, ones that focus on music or, you know, Repo Man or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like Green Room is a good punk movie. Do I like it for the horror movie? It is purporting to show like horrors of fascism and skinhead violence and stuff like that. That's where Injury's out. But yeah, with mean- presentation of skinhead culture, it's somebody's right, right look at it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that critique of the film. You know, I think that temporally it exists in a really weird space where it feels like it's 2005 by way of 2019. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the the, the way it's depicting like, you know, like like yeah, that that's what that, that's what like, you know, American neo-Nazis and skinheads looked like you know, in like the early aughts and the nineties, but it's not like, like today they're like Richard Spencer types, you know, they're, they're wearing like Brooks brothers suits and they have clean haircuts. They're not like the oi pole crowd anymore. Right. And so I feel that like it's there's an American fixation yeah. on Nazism as being the standard for badness. And it actually yeah. neglects to show like, okay, so for historical context, which I think John, you asked for like, uh, I will trace a very wobbly line now from like two-tone and skinhead culture originating in Jamaica and yeah. emerging in the overlap of like dance music and punk in the 60s and 70s in England. And then it kind of uh, getting picked up in some way and turned into this militancy working class thing around the Falklands in the early 80s. And at some point it comes over to America and the music gets sped up and there's an overlap with hardcore. And I'm doing a very bad job of explaining this, right? But like, okay, I'm from Syracuse, New York, right? Uh, 90s straight edge hardcore dudes who are pro-life, like militant pro-life will punch people in the face who are smoking a cigarette, who hand out, who like go to anti-abortion protests and threaten people and like talk about knifing each other. Like they don't look like romper stomper, like skinheads, but they're absolutely terrifying and violent. And I think that the discourse and the connection between punk and violence for so long has been one like a really thick line drawn around this idea of skinheads being the enemy and like really okay so like from my perspective it's always just been men 
Yeah. So like, that's something I like about Green Room. Although I will say one of the most unrealistic things about Green Room is like the representation of women in it because we have a say in bands and things like that. But, yeah. you know, most of the bad dudes don't look like that. So I don't know what I think about it. Yeah, I think it's I think there's like this there's this impulse to to always make sure that the enemy is very clearly defined and very clearly othered and distinct from ourselves and like you know from my own experience you know in the the late 90s early aughts like midwest punk scenes like the who was a nazi in the scene was was almost completely indistinguishable from who was like street punk or hardcore you know like their their aesthetic overlap was was identical and that was really complicated social tensions and i think that this this movie is impulse to be like okay like you're, you're going to spot these guys a mile away because they're all wearing the same hunter green uh, and orange reversible bomber jacket. They're all shaved bald and they've all got red laces. Like they're they're pretty much wearing like giant neon signs that say I'm a fascist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then meanwhile, in real life, the guy who's standing next to you pointing out every one of them uh, is doing so to cover up the fact that he himself is like a rapist. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In the punk scene and be political. So. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting, actually. That's an interesting critique. And I think it stems from this idea to, like you said, this, the, they look like a kind of stereotype of like the British skinhead movement back in like the late 70s and early 80s with the, with the docks and the bomber jacket. And it's a way of making sure that kind of uh, fascist violence remains in some, in some sense historicized and mm-hmm. we don't have to kind of admit the possibility, right? That maybe, maybe, maybe those kind of historical curiosities are not the ones we have to worry about now. Maybe it's the people who can, you know, put on the the three button jacket and and the formal shoes and have their uh, euphemistically named think tanks and and pseudo academic journals where they can talk about their their uh, in the biggest inverted commas in the world legitimate concerns. So I think I, honestly that's a really interesting critique. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way um, because. I suppose from a filmmaking point of view, it makes sure that you kind of have this shared semiotic code of like, oh, this is what a skinhead Nazi looks like. Yeah, Nazis in 2019 do not look like Patrick Stewart wearing Tractor Supply Company. They look right. like they look like riot cops. They're cops. Yeah. Yeah. And so when the pop depiction and the cozy actor with whom we're all familiar are the iconography of Nazism, like they should be flying Nazi flags outside of Congress this week because the laws that are being passed to arbitrate what people can and cannot do with their reproductive systems are another form of like widespread eugenic experimentation. That's not what real Nazis look like. Nazis were organized soldiers brought on by the government. They have guns. Nazis are cops. I would like to see more of that being discussed for everyone, like cute punk slasher movie. And it's a good movie. I know, like I'm being a dick and I'm making it sound like I'm being really good <laughs> with this film. And I want the film to exist, but really what I need is the world to support that film. I want to, more, th- more than I love this movie, I want to live in a world where I can sit and relax and feel mindless about a cutesy two-hour slasher movie depiction of pop punk and Nazis. Like, that would be great if the world around us <laughs> supported that being enjoyable. But like, yeah, I don't know. I worry. I worry about pop depictions of Nazism or pop pop allegations of Nazism in that way. Because it's very crucial 
it's very, very, very crucial for everyone to keep in the forefront of their mind the real images of what real people who do those things actually look like. They look like ICE. Yeah. You know, they look yeah, like yeah. police. And I worry when I see things that aren't that way. No, I think that's I think that's a brilliant point, and I think that's something that makes it's it's so strange. I can sort of imagine an alternate version of the present where watching this film was that moment where you go, oh, I can just relax and enjoy this. This is entertainment, and not where we have to go. Oh man, if only, if yeah, if, John, if, if, if only this is what we had to deal with. Right, it would be John Wick for punks, and we would have organized screenings yeah. at bars. <laughs> And it would be the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It would be like Decline of Western Civilization. It would just be another... Because like a lot of the great entry points for punk in film, they do skew kind of scary. There's always scary things going on in these movies. They may not explicitly be horror movies. They may be more like dramas, but it's always like someone's murdered. You know, there's always some element of it. Um, the great ones, they dissolve into the collective canon that continues to like self-sustain and inspire a lot of the time because they stay insular and they don't really try to comment on the world outside of it except to do the man nobody gets us so here in our world here's what's screwed up like decline and stuff like that a uh, suburbia but you know this movie it almost seems i mean you can't make a movie that includes nazis lately and not presumably be making a statement about nazis and to that point, like, if I am totally wrong and this person, like, I don't know, what would compel a person to make a film that included Nazis as a plot point in the last 10 years uh, and not have it be some sort of political statement? I don't know. <laughs> I can't speak directly to the director's intentions, but like, mm. if it was an attempt to make a statement about, I don't know, I could see in some some hell toilet void parallel universe if it was really, really generalized. Like, this is a statement about how young liberal people who don't like Nazis need to rise up and fight back against the enemy, even if they're scary. Like, no, that ain't it, chief. Um, yeah, because I think a lot of those, a lot of like, in, well, especially in contemporary liberalism, there's this sort of reticence to even discuss like the politicized violence right because that would involve you know the kind of classic acknowledgement of our of our uh, investment in in capitalism's ideology right we exist in a in a in a system that is sustained by by that systemic violence that underpins everything so no wonder no wonder you can't get any kind of like liberal uh, articulation of political violence that goes beyond like oh no this is bad this is the this is the end of all things it's like there's a there's a a disgusting uh piece of shit running for um mep over here in the uk who every time he keeps appearing in public just gets milkshakes dumped <laughs> over him and it's and it's it's so good but like already there's this kind of hand wringing of like oh this has opened the doors to political violence and i'm like well if this uh -huh. is all this is all you can say about this is what's opening the door oh god uh, yeah yeah, yeah, not the Nazi running for office. It's somebody spilling a milkshake. Oh, yep. what what'll they do next? Bomb Palestine, strip mine jungles yeah. for the ingredients to make cell phones, enslave children to make them. 
I don't care about a milkshake. Milkshake is 9.30, put it on my calendar for Tuesday morning. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm old and mean, and sometimes I flex like I can say whatever I want. But honestly, the hand-wringing preoccupation with everything flattening and uh, being equated to violence, I think in ways it's a byproduct of the hybrid social media and panopticon surveillance culture. Like Everyone is afraid that if they're not, they're being watched all the time, so if they're not no matter how they really feel about violence, if they're not actively seen as denouncing it, they may become victims to it, as we all are. Like you said, there's literally no respite for violence. You can stay home, locked in your apartment all day long under a hug blanket, reading Gandhi on your phone, and your phone, again, was still made via environmental destruction and child slave labor on an internet that we argue about whether or not that's neutral and safe and free and open. So there's literally no end to the wormhole of violence. And it just, you know, there's just levels to the denial and I so we stop at milkshake because if we literally go any deeper than that, we have to look at what we're holding and what when we're when we're lambasting the milkshake throwers, we're doing it on the slave labor device. And that will never stop infuriating me. But I can't stay in my house to avoid it either. And so we soldier on. But yeah, it, it, you know, that sort of hand wringing is is that's nice. Thank you for telling us exactly who you are. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Sorry. I think that, um, I think that connects actually into one of the movies, one of the points I really liked in the movie and that the, the band would have had no meaningful conflict with the Nazis. Like, oh, they razzed him with a dead Kennedys cover, but like, you know, the Nazis flipped him off and that was kind of the end of that conflict. But there would have been no meaningful tension between these two groups had they not accidentally had witnessed uh, the, the murder and the dead body, right? Like they, they are completely complicit and totally okay with taking their money, performing a show for them, engaging with that system. Yeah, and it's 100%, only it's only 100%. by accident that they that they become, you know, engaged with the actual violence around them. And even through the majority of that, right, through through the majority of this conflict, it's it's a giant standoff, you know, and, and the whole time they're like, oh, please call the police, you know, like get the cops involved. Let's get the cops here to come save us. And yeah. and they're they're like all the way up until that final climactic sequence, this group of like. Like, like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to map them onto society at large because that's extremely reductive. But like, you know, these like, quote unquote, liberal punks, like, like want the state to come in and save them from the state. OK, let's think of it this way, though, because I had the same thought and then I had to think generationally. Right. So instead mm -hmm. of let's absolve ourselves of guilt and not judge these children, but they are young and it is a modern movie of cell phones. Right. Um, let's hedge bets. What year were they born? Probably after 2000. They've only known a world post Columbine and iPhones. Yeah. So what have they been taught except even if they've been shown nothing but contrarian evidence their entire lives via those devices, all they've ever been taught is to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And so also like in today's day and age of mass shootings, those dudes are waving hella guns around the entire movie. What do you have against guns? who has the most guns in the world, the police. The police have more guns than the military. The military back to police pipeline is how the DOD budget is so massive is because weapons development is how, you know, towns in Maine with five people in them also have five tanks, one for every citizen. So like, yeah, we have been destabilized as a society by the over-militarization and spread of weapons. That's one thing that is wonderfully accurate about the movie, I think, is that these kids would be so desperate, all they would have to think to do would be to call the cops because that's all they've been taught it's sad and now i'm becoming a literalist for a movie that i was criticizing <laughs> what do you think kids would do you know because these are the same you know what are they teaching high school kids now 
every time there was a shooting at an American high school, how, how, you know, we talk about what do we teach kids to do, get under their desks and do drills and stuff like that. These kids don't fucking know what to do. They've never had guns pulled on them like that before. So call the cops. That's actually for, that may be the only situation ever in the history of ever in which I would advise calling the cops (laughs) is when you need someone (laughs) more guns than Nazis, (laughs) like local Nazis, like a free range, organic, like a North Northwestern Pacific Northwest uh, digicamo Nazis, Patrick Stewart Nazis. When, <laughs> when you need someone with more guns than the movie Nazis, call the cops. All other times, maybe don't. But that I can sympathize with a little bit in the era of like extraordinary militarization, where the military gives the cops their weapons. If you're going to yeah, call yeah, some, yeah. you've only got time to make one phone call before they kick in the door and blow your head off. The movie's also great in its depiction of extreme escalation of masculine violence. That's another way this movie. <laughs> there well, are so I, many dudes yeah, there. let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about that. Damn, I'm coming off as as a pro as a pro uh, active dry yeast uh, anti fascist like. <laughs> person who loves uh quick bread and cops right now and neither of those <laughs> at all. but you have to think you know if you ever want to live in a world that no longer has these systems you have to think be able to think outside of them you have to be able to conceive of a world outside of them that's like yeah. i don't know the capitalist realism thing yeah i i'm so glad you you dropped that because i was just yeah. about to start talking about capitalist realism yeah. i can't i can't do that again because i think i've done that in every single episode of this show that we've done <laughs> and i actually i haven't had an opportunity to talk about it or think about it i was really lucky that verso invited me to host the new york um launch of the k-punk book a few months ago i actually got to host that conversation and talk to people about his work and that was kind of like what i was really harping on that day because mm. i was thinking about it a lot but yeah maybe green room is a capitalist realist flick um in that way is because you know if the limits of your thought process are calling the cops yeah 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 you know maybe maybe that is like maybe it's all end game well this that raises a really a really important question right which is like what is the kind of political um kind of consciousness of punk generally if as you say post 2000 you've got like young punks who've started going out in a in a shitty van to do like gigs and dive bars and their first response to to this is like let's call the cops it's like uh, to what extent can we talk then about a kind of political imagination of the punk scene generally i think about this a lot because historically i don't know i mean i'm kind of behind the game i still think about problematic as he is like Hebdige's uh subculture manual of style and like mm-hmm. philosophical and sociological works about punk and how many splinter scenes there are and we get more books every year varying qualities and like there are so many different ways to do punk now and so many different ways to make punk political at this point i don't know like uh what's punk in the russia of you know, five, six years ago or whenever Pussy Riot happened versus what's punk under Duterte's regime versus what's here versus what's punk in Mexico City. Like, it's all going to be super different. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of things that are in that larger web that I think... I don't know if, you know, it depends on what you would call punk. I'm sorry, my dog just started barking because he heard somebody in the hallway. So you're actually getting like 
if you're imagining me as a punk, here's my like big scary dog on a rope. My third <laughs> pound carrier who has a lot of opinions. Sorry about that. Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's it's as much you know when people throw out their hands in the air and they ask the question, well, what's punk anyway? You know, it's kind of yeah, like. Yeah looking at everything through the obfuscating lens of, well, what's politics anyway, because of how we historically defined politics and how we continue to, which is another uh, thing where I tend to prefer the spooky left to like the liberal left is that we kind of get out of the phenomenology of voting a little bit. And we start to talk about things that I think are punk, like sustainable community farming mm-hmm. and agriculture and healthcare, community provided healthcare and skill sharing and childcare and reproductive healthcare on ground level and things like that. I, I know those things. I know of those things and I've participated in those systems and I advocate for those systems in my own life and in my own politics. That's the way I choose to live because of punk. I came to it through punk as well as through like spooky adjacent stuff like the occult. And there's a long history of the occult and punk being connected to, of course, but I think that in some places there would absolutely be, it would be the punkest fucking thing in the world for a band with, if I'm remembering the movie correctly, more than one woman in it to sing an anti-Nazi song at a Nazi bar. Mm. Like That would be extremely fucking punk if you're from where I'm from, where bands don't come through and all the bars are full of GIs. So like, I don't know anymore. I think we have, uh, with greater global connectivity and greater awareness of specific scenes, we've learned that punk really truly is like yeast, again, to go back to bread. It's like the bacteria <laughs> that can survive anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's 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 the mirror for politics. I don't think of punk as having like any sort of universal politics. I don't know. Well, that's what connects it back to horror generally, I think. And I think you're so, I think you make a very good point because there's that great moment when they're on stage just before they uh, about to start playing where Anton Yelchin's character, Pat, leans over to Sam and says, are we, are we really, are we really going to do this? Yeah. And, and she says, it was your fucking idea. Like, right. You, well- you, you do this otherwise, or I'm telling them that you're Jewish, which is gonna get him into a lot of shit anyway but yeah. like but i mean okay again this is where my brain folds in on itself because that is another moment where i'm watching it and i'm like that's it that is what it is like to be in the band so like here's a story for you if you would like to know where punk and horror and politics again intersect in my life flash forward 10 years i'm on tour with perfect pussy in europe right mm-hmm. and we're playing at an anti-fascist squat in a small town in Germany that will remain nameless, right? So we show up and it's like an old motel and it's been taken over for a very long time. There's bunks, there's secret underground places, whatever. It's a very large spot in the middle of nowhere. And we're there to play and we set up and there's red light bulbs and everything's broken. And we play like a super intense, like 15 minute set. That's about all the music we've got. I literally threw up on the front of my shirt. I'm crawling on the stage by the end of it. I've beaten myself in the head with the microphone. It is that vibe, that environment. We're having a wonderful time. I'm covered in puke. I'm thrilled. I'm in Germany. I've never been here before. And our show's over. And some dude starts screaming at me in the audience in English. He's fuck you. And like, I really like, it'll be very boring if you bleep all this out. So I won't even bother going through with it. But there were a ton <laughs> of slurs, a ton of insults thrown at me in English by a dude in the audience in Germany. Right. So I look over at my bandmates and they're 
at this point, it's like the band is kind of in this tie, this perpetual tiebreaker, because there's an odd number of us, right? And there's a fair, like, it's like a Kinsey scale of violence in that band. (laughs) And I am second to highest, easy, if not tied for highest. So I'm looking around and I know that like union rules, I just need a majority vote. And I catch the eyes of everybody and I pick the microphone back up and I went absolutely ballistic. And of course, absolutely ballistic in my world is going, my name is Meredith. I'm a real person. I flew however many fucking thousand miles to get here. I have parents back home and friends. I just played until I puked. I just want to be your friend. Nobody paid to get in here. We're in the middle of nowhere. This isn't even harassment because our band sucks. You're alone and you're screaming at me and you're calling me all these slurs. What? is your problem. And I'm walking off and the crowd parted and I walked out into the audience and I'm absolutely screaming at this dude. And I realized he's he's much shorter than me, which I don't think either of us realized until I got off the stage because I'm really tall. And out of nowhere, I'm standing there and I'm like, this dude is absolutely obliterated. He's wasted and he's on a ton of drugs and he's swaying back and forth. And he looks like he's very upset about being emasculated. And I'm sitting there like having that moment of, are we really going to do this? And I'm thinking like, oh my God, I, I can't turn around right now because I can't take my eyes off this guy because I'm nailing him to the floor while I'm, I'm, I have the microphone and I'm saying, if you have something to say, it's not good to swear at me. I'm the only one with the microphone, but now I'm going to hand it to you. What do you have to say? And I went to hand the dude the microphone and he lunged at me. And out of nowhere, one of my bandmates flies over my shoulder with a left hook, breaks his nose. I heard it. And this dude nailed the floor like sack of Nazi shit, right? <laughs> and people started, people who liked my band were beside themselves upset. They, what did you do? This wasn't that, you bitch. And they're dragging this dude out and he's out cold and he's covered in blood. I've got like his blood on me. I'm freaking out. I ran to the back. I'm like, what is going on? And as they're dragging this guy out and I'm cowering and I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? One of the dudes who booked the show, and I can't believe that I chose to tell this story when this is the punchline. The dude who books the show looks up at me as I'm shaking, and he goes, oh, that's Toby. He's a Marxist. What? <laughs> what? what? And that was my response. I went, what? And he said, yeah, I guess that's been a long time coming. And I cannot explain. I know I said something. After that, to the tune of, I don't care if he's an atheist, I don't care if he's a noble gas, I don't care if he's a cruciferous vegetable, he's an asshole, and you're telling me he does this all the time? At your Antifa, like, uh, Overlook Hotel palatial complex in the middle of buttfuckzig Germany, and you're telling me that this Toby who looks like he's really into ska, by the way. This guy is not a skinhead. We are not in green room land here. We are talking about, we're at the Antifa squat. This dude looked like he could read. And he almost socked me in the mouth. And if someone hadn't come over my shoulder with a really cold dude KO, a Marxist would have laid me out because he didn't like that there was a and And so that's where my hesitation with green room and its depictions of cruelty and punk come from. Like, uh, 
by and large, the big problems in punk, like rapists and even just sexists and misogynists and that level of violence, even that which is justified in some backwards way in these people's minds by their left-leaning politics, is a far larger pox than organized Nazis. You know, that requires these Nazis to organize. It's another, like, you know, unwilling depiction so far as punk. Mm. You know, but yeah, I mean... When it comes down to it, these are the moments. And this is why I really, I liked Green Room. Yeah, yeah. I liked Green Room in that way for the same reason that I liked Ari Aster's Hereditary. I was confused on it until I read a bunch of interviews and I heard him explain it repeatedly as people aren't supposed to realize until most of the way through the movie that it's about a human sacrifice told from the perspective of the unknowing sacrifice. <laughs> like, I feel like in that way, Green Room is a perfect music movie because it's told, it's the anything can happen on the road story told from the view of the band and yeah. it's sci-fi in that way yeah as as the story is unfolding in front of them because you're much more likely to as has been pointed out already in this fantastic conversation you already went to the you agreed to go to the nazi bar knowing it was a nazi bar played a show for the nazis we were going to take your you know thing and buy your weed with nazi money that was going to be fabulous you already agreed to do it how many times would that happen in real life knowingly Mm. And you'd be much more likely to meet Toby and all of his friends. So like, how, how is Green Room operating in this sense is my question. Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's a really, that's a, a, like my jaw is on the floor right now from that story. I, I feel like now I need to say, I know. I love you both dearly. Toby was no, not a Marxist. <laughs> I know. All, all, I, all I'm going to say is, uh, Toby, Toby, wherever you are in the world, you massive piece of shit, you got off lightly. You got off so lightly. He absolutely did. He got taken down by me, though, yelling at him about how it's important to be nice. And then he got his nose real broken. And so Toby actually ate shit in a way that brings us all the way back to this thing about, I love violence. That I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I love violence because I've been in the band and I know that that will happen. And it's not going to be the organized Nazi group that you play for before they do something. It's going to be when you least expect it. It's going to be some guy grabbing you at your show. It's going to be someone trying to rob you, steal your money, attack you. It's going to be, or it's not going to be in punk. Forgive me. This is something else I wanted to mention. As a movie, and I know that you guys, you did a fabulous episode on Lords of Chaos, which I also have not seen and won't. And... There is real, 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 real shit in National Socialist Black Metal, as you know, from like talking to Nestor and stuff like that. Where's that movie? That would have been cooler than like Green Room in a lot of ways. Like, because there are groups, like we were saying, like punk. I don't know many punks who are interested in not, like where are the people who are into punk mm. and Nazism? Like most people yeah. I think of as being into punk, they're like, straight edge and work in social media here in Brooklyn or they're like dirt farmers. <laughs> we've all retired, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all retired. It's podcasts from here on out. But right? that said, like, it's like there are there are fringe music scenes right now where there are massive problems with identifiable, identifiable, organized, blatant, outspoken, coordinated, weaponized fascism. It's just not punk. It's black metal. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, where's that movie? Why did Green Room get made and Lords of Chaos get made? Couldn't they have all those dudes who made those movies, couldn't they have pooled their dude resources? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think 
uh, I think both Ash and I would shout out uh, Kim Kelly, who's done a lot of work on uh, stuff like Black Flags over Brooklyn. A Kickstarter music project. Uh, oh, amazing. Kind of- <laughs> I've never been prouder. But yeah, that was that was Kim via Kickstarter music, my uh, radical resource redistribution uh, burning church that I do from Monday to Friday and love very much. So yeah, Kim, Kim's the homie. I am more in awe of her every single day. Also, just because we're here, I'll tell you, because I know nobody else is listening. <laughs> yeah, let me do her chart earlier this year. Ooh. I know Kim's whole like birth chart. I've done Kim's whole like astrology thing. I think I've got her like, seriously, when I did it, I screamed, I dropped it on the ground. I'm like, of course, she has so much Aquarius in her chart. It's insane. <laughs> and now I think I got her because she's always like, oh man, <laughs> I can hear her voice in my head. I love Kim Kelly. I'm, we we we're, we're gonna have to get Kim on the show. We're gonna have to try and make that happen at some point. If if oh my god, I can't in good faith say Kim Kelly for president because I know she doesn't want one either. <laughs> but Kim Kelly for president of my heart. <laughs> I love her so much. She's uh, so. We we stand. We we unapologetically yeah. <laughs> stand. <laughs> Absolutely, and Black Flags Over Brooklyn. That's a great example of like there's a music anarchy anti Nazi thing that I love, and like I can say that because I was part of it, but I was like standing by cheering the whole time that rules. So like, there's stuff like that going on, do that movie, you know? I think it's really interesting that this, this idea of like the punks have all retired now, because this is, I mean, this is something that happened in, in the UK, right? All of the, uh, the bands that came up in like the seventies, like any of them who were still like going, uh, are now doing like commercials to sell butter or like doing like car car insurance commercials because there's this capitalist co-option of historical cultural capital that was seen as being like anti-authoritarian and subversive in some way so like the capitalist realist takeover of of punk is is maybe not surprising then i don't know i mean I hesitate to analyze it again, just because I've seen everything splintering. And I think in some like fringe cases, punk is still, or can still be a way uh, it can be a tool one can use to process the trauma of capitalist realism in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's a historical and it allows you to draw from like such a vast set of ideas and skills and resources that like punk can be the panacea to capitalist realism. It kind of allows you to play between worlds and like time periods in that way. It's like horror. Actually, I go on about this a lot. It's one of the only places where genre worship is applauded and expected in like one of the big issues with capitalist realism, of course, is that we're a culture obsessed with novelty, which is like one of the driving forces behind it. And we're always trying to iterate and iterate and iterate and it's accelerationist and all this, that, that, Punk uh, is quantum, it's time travel, and it lets you jump around. And now, because genre worship is expected, you can be a band that says, like, okay, we're like Japanese worship, so we're going to sound like Crow, but all Mm -hmm. of our lyrics, like, we're not, we're obviously not going to be of that time period, or like, we're going to sound like crass. Like, there's definitely a lot of bands that want to do that, but like, their lyrics are anti ice, very specifically, something like Downtown Boys, uh, they're going to sound like x-ray specs boingo boingo wall of voodoo bands like that and then their lyrics are going to be super contemporary like yeah punk is quantum in relation to that i don't know i think it kind of explodes possibilities for outlets if you do it right Mm, Um, but i think that to believe that which i do it's reliant on like 
not taking a, a list of actions or behavioral traits and putting them together under the subheader of punk, but just attaching the idea that various things can be punk if they're done in a certain way. Because just about anything can be, which returns to the idea of like, in some places, food not bombs is punk. In some places, blowing up a bank. In all places, blowing up a bank is punk. In some places. <laughs> it's good what? to have that as like a nice benchmark. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, it's if punk is anything, it's exploded possibilities. And that is something that I see reflected in few other places, but horror is one of them. And also just like, I think that all reflects nicely back to capitalist realism in the writings of Mark Fisher, because he worked so heavily in like that enjambment critique. Yeah. Oh, haunting and ghosts and my view of like the promise of video games or something like that. It's kind of like, we'll make the band that sounds like this and talks about this or uses this kind of unexpected imagery or, you know, horror. And what if we made a monster that looked like X, Y, Z, it kind of all explodes out in every direction, um, which can result in choice paralysis. But I think it's also just like, if done well, they're all, they can be run concurrently too. They're just like wild and wide toolkits for political action. Or they make uh, such a wide swathe of actions directly political if you go mm. them as a lens. So. I think I think the way that you put that that punk is exploded possibility is so cool. That's that's such a good way of putting it. I am uh, very cool now that you mention it. I, yeah, <laughs> neither of neither of us are going to fight you on that one. <laughs> Sick. Uh, Ash, was there anything else you wanted to bring in whilst we start to think about bringing things to a close? Yeah, I think um, so. One of the scenes, especially uh, so something I really wanted to get your opinion on, given your like incredibly unique and very specific set of of interests, is so the final sequence of, of the film opens up when um, it's Pat and Amber, our last two surviving characters, and they've kind of resigned themselves to die at the hands of these Nazis. And then uh, uh, Pat finishes his motivational speech that he had started earlier that was cut off. And and they kind of come to the conclusion that, that, like, traditional modes of conflict will not avail them in this situation. They have to go for something a little bit more guerrilla. And, uh, you know, Ember uh, shaves Pat's hair, draws, like, Sharpie marker combat makeup on him. And then Pat puts on one of the, uh, like, bomber jacket Nazi outfits from one of the dead Nazis that was just kind of lying around them. And you, you get the scene where, you know, two two of like the like Nazi death squad guys enter the room ready to kill everybody. And Pat's kind of like shouting at a hole in the ground. You know, he's disguised himself as one of the Nazis. And they ask, like, who are you? And he turns around and he's like, I'm Odin. And he like jumps into the hole uh, as part of their like ploy to, to finally beat the Nazis. And I found this to be really interesting that from from both an occult perspective, that, that he's specifically like invoking and co-opting a lot of these like Asturu identities that that are heavily contested between left-leaning forces and Nazis and he's kind of absorbed a little bit of their aesthetic in order to defeat them so I wonder what was what is your take on kind of like broadly everything I just outlined in that incredibly concise rambling (laughs) what you just I mean you couldn't have done a better job because what you just described is uh, Schrodinger's punk basics and something that I think about constantly. Right. So here's where, what feels like, uh, exoteric consistency comes up with against esoteric immediacy 
And uh, yes, I meant it that way. So here's the thing. <laughs> Let's think about this reasonably. Like, if we heard a story, and by we, I mean, like, let's take a broad cross-section of Twitter users who listen to your show and, like, know people in bands, great, people who would be interested in this subject matter, right? And you put, like, a thought experiment to them, like, all right, time for some game theory. <laughs> Here's your... Here, let me play devil's advocate. Here's a thought experiment. You know, I oh, my God, I get to be that guy. It's so satisfying. So, and here... the. What I'm doing just now, I guess, in a way, is exactly what we're talking about. So if you heard suggested, like people have posited this as a conspiracy theory. So one way that we here in the spooky left, we encounter this idea with people like Milo Yiannopoulos, where people will theorize that Milo's a covert agent and he's doing some bullshit and he must be one of us because he's gay and he's young and he's whatever. It's like we try to see it. We really want to see it, but we don't see it. Right. So when we're looking at people like that and we're praising people like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden for their authenticity and their willingness to come forward and show and expose their real selves, which has always to me seemed at odds with traditional anarchism and security therein. Um, but I also understand the importance of the public facing activist. There's this idea of like, if we suggested that as an idea, go undercover as the bad guy. Like if we suddenly found out that Tommy Laren was like a radical anarchist organizer and had been doing this all <laughs> over these assholes. If we found out any of these people, we would be repulsed. We would be infuriated. We would say that what they'd done in the public eye had negated all of their work. If we saw that suggested in our spooky left circles as an anarchist tactic, a subversive tactic, like, oh, you should literally just dress like a fucking Nazi all the time and get them to think you are one. We'd say, no, what are we, undercover cops? We're authentic. We're going to go out and talk about our politics and take selfies at protests. I'm sorry, that doesn't get with me. There's a flip side to this, though, also, which specific to the occult, which you did ask about, and specific to music and specific, again, to both horror and racism and nationalism. On The Quietus, a few months ago, they ran an excellent article about the occult uh, subsect, the Order of Nine Angles, and how people in music, in like, uh, this is like largely surrounding the debate about people like Douglas P and Boyd Rice and neo folk Nazism and stuff like that, and how it kind of bridges the gap between punk and the occult to a lot of people, right? People in the neo folk scene being found to be members of this alleged occult group called the Order of Nine Angles who've put a bunch of books out and they're musicians and whatever. They are, by the book anyway, if you go by the book and you believe that this is what they do, this is how they exist, this isn't part of the grimoire tradition of like allegorical telling of how your shit works, they believe in killing people, race war, everything bad that people can possibly believe in. And they, as part of their initiation rites, they force anyone wanting to do this like initiation to become a member of this group for a minimum of a year or two years, I think it's been a while since I've like read the details. You either, you have to become a member of a hated group and you have to be public yeah. about it. And you have to like go through that trial by fire and you can do one of two things. You can become an Islamic jihadist, Sharia law fundamentalist, or you can become a violent white nationalist. So what's going on there? Because that's what the ONA does in a way. They dress up and they pretend for a year, for a set period of time to be a white nationalist. So then there's this kid in green room doing survivalism by dressing up like a white nationalist. Then there's, you know, the idea of how they actually dress. 
um, there's precedent for a lot of this. And it really makes this whole thing like turn over and over and over and over again in my head as it pertains to when we're looking at music as another place we want to live our politics in the world. People who are into punk, we kind of lean that way anyway. This idea of like, it's so diffuse at this point, you can't tell anymore what people believe by looking at them. And to take that a step further, to do so would be patently insane. Yeah. Because that idea of like, dressing one way and actually being another thing underneath, it can be as simple as he what he didn't turn out to be like I thought he was, or as serious as I want to be in this satanic neo-folk Nazi band, so I'm going to become a fake member of ISIS for two years. So like, when I think about all of the places and all of the times across history that tactical illusion um, has been used from like literally in the case of the Matahari, up through undercover cops, you know, infiltrating ELF in the 90s through this scene in Green Room that's really great. Again, I think about other places and other contexts where it's still happening right now that pertain to the occult and horror and, and music and rock and roll. And yeah, I think if anything, it's it's interesting because it I think it's important if, if that's supposed to be allegorical in the movie. I think a takeaway that could come from that would be like, if you're going to be part of a scene, um, don't assume everyone believes the same things as you and don't, uh, because they're young, you know, like a very like a good message for young punks would be, don't assume people believe the same as you based on how they look and um, be willing to stand up for what you believe in. And that's like a really good and solid message to end on. But they just go about it kind of messy. And then, yeah, the real, many real situations involving signaling, codifying the assumption of identity, um, they are tactics favored by, like, let's call it the bad people side of the spectrum from cops to the ONA. But like, there it is in green room, the kid does it and it's good. So like, parse that out, you know, I guess that's, it's not an answer, but it's what I think when I think about it. Yeah, I think that the the that brought up a lot of really interesting points, and I, I think um I think uh, what was uh, I can't remember the exact phrase you used. It was it was like um, tactical illusion. I think I think was your phrase. Tactical tactical illusions. Like uh, yeah. I guess if we wanted to, in one context, we could call it the spectacle. You know, mm-hmm. the history yep. of the spectacle. In another text, in the magical context, we could talk about it as glamour, the origins yep. of glamour. Uh, we could talk about it as you know. Uh, neuro-linguistic programming or neuro-visual reprogramming, like uh, codifying images. I mean, like, think about it this way, very simply, very current example, when people became hip to the fact that during the last presidential election, Ted Cruz was purposefully wearing suits that didn't really fit. And they were like, this guy works for the government. He has a shit ton of money. And figured out that he was attempting and failing to signal through his clothes that he was like working class. You know what I mean? Yeah. it's a very important thing to be aware of, along with a lot of other things. Like this is where, this is where we come full circle back to the top of the conversation about the the interlock of magic and the horror of politics and horror and politics. Is kind of like a you scratch the surface of what you see, the end result, and you find out the sort of 
horrifying basement chop shop Frankenstein's monstering of packs and advisors and coaches and whatever that it took to get that politician up there spit shined on the stage only to code switch and wear an ill-fitting suit like the monster in there is actually worse than the Ted Cruz we hate already and it's this combination hybrid of magic and politics that really does add up to something that's that's really really horrifying I think, I think that's a phenomenal point. And the idea that there's a worse Ted Cruz inside of Ted Cruz is going to keep me awake for the next like three weeks straight. <laughs> so I wanted to personally thank you for that living nightmare. Him, if you unscrew him, there's a little smaller, little worse Ted Cruz. And then oh, no. <laughs> do it again. And... Is it like a matryoshka of like evil conservative politicians? <laughs> the Ted cruz That's what it is. Um. I just, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on and sort of blowing my mind in all the best ways. And and right, I've just been frantically taking notes this entire time. I've got like so many books to read and articles and things to look up. Oh my god, I'm such a nerd. This is like this hits me right in the like kidneys of everything I care about and like in life. Like I just, you know, it's it's almost hard to pull back and talk about it in a. Uh, I'm always kind of waiting it because in most arenas you like have to explain how horror applies to or explain how something is political in a horror movie that seems just kind of casual and fun. But yeah, you're in my wormhole. It's all very, <laughs> very interconnected. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to expostulate. It is. It has been. It has been an education. It has been a pleasure. It's been. It's been amazing to listen to you talk. Um, can what can we plug for you? Where can where can people find you online? Where can people uh, uh, read slash listen slash experience your work? What can we plug? Wow. I mean, I don't. I wow. I'm so like. I, I don't know how internet I seem to the outside world, but I'm so not internet. I don't have, <laughs> I have a Twitter uh, where I make a lot of jokes about Satan and and <laughs> suggestions for things I'll do if I'm president. And I have an Instagram where I post lots of pictures with my dog and things that I make. But by and large, like I'm doing stuff in the real world. So I guess Twitter is the place to find out about that stuff. I don't know. I need to be an adult and kind of get it together someday. You would think now that I work for like a major multinational corporation and or was on TV and or like published it, I would have this nailed. But I don't. Um, I just kind of throw snippets of my adventures on the Internet and expect people to cursorily follow along and or stop me when they see me in person. If you light a candle under that one tree when the moon is just right, you'll get access, you'll get access to my Google calendar. Uh, you you heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> perform, perform the uh, sacred rite, and, um, and and you never know what dark magic up, may produce. Sign up for the Kickstarter music newsletter. That's the best possible suggestion that I can. There we have. go. And yeah, sign up for the Kickstarter music newsletter because I'm incredibly, incredibly passionate about my job because all I do all day is help people and. Uh, find a million new points to make about why the actual music industry is complete trash and help people be more punk in ways that many times actively work to defeat Nazis, which is rules. Have I mentioned that I do this for an actual job? It's great working in public art. Um, and I'm at Graves Meredith on Twitter and Instagram and I make lots of weird things and I often just like put them out in the world without telling people. So <laughs> I'm always like, like I don't have anything to plug right now, but every once in a while I'll be like, Oh Yeah we made this record or hey, here's this music video or here's an article I wrote. 
I know I, I have an article coming out this week that is horror related. So it's very, very scattershot, but mostly centralized in the same locations where I go on and on and on about baking bread and hailing Satan. Twitter. Uh, Well, uh, thank you so much again for coming on. We hope everyone has enjoyed and uh, uh, been uplifted and inspired by uh, this episode. Um, Yeah, this was great. This was great. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay spooky. spooky.